Rail's labor troubles appear to be averted. How can mom and pop grocers compete with the big guys? And what motivates companies to move to more sustainable practices? Pull up a chair and join us as the editors of DC Velocity discuss these stories, as well as news and supply chain trends on this week's Logistics Matters podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Maloney. I'm the group editorial director at DC Velocity. Welcome. Logistics Matters is sponsored by Aptian. Aptian is a global provider of mission-critical, industry-specific logistics and transportation management solutions. Aptian Routing and Scheduling delivers advanced transportation management systems to world-leading brands, helping them streamline daily operational processes. If you're ready to see savings of up to 30% and unlock the value of your transportation operation, Aptian can help. Visit Aptian.com and discover what's next now. As usual, our DC Velocity senior editors, Ben Ames and Victoria Kickham, will be along to provide their insights into the top stories of this week. But to begin today, the pandemic was especially hard on small retailers, including the mom and pop grocers on many street corners of America. You know these folks, they're known as bodegas in some places. Well, the shutdowns and the lack of street traffic that they had during the pandemic caused many of them to close, but others worked to figure out how to thrive and actually compete with the bigger grocers on diverse inventory and home deliveries. To find out how that happened, I recently talked to Ellie Katz, the president and CEO of a company called National Retail Solutions that was formed to solve some of these problems for the small corner grocers. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Ellie. It's good to have you with us on Logistics Matters today. Thank you, David. Thank you very much for having me. For those people who may not be familiar with National Retail Solutions, can you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? Absolutely. I started National Retail Solutions about seven years ago uh, with the basic premise to give tools to these independent convenience stores, the bodegas, the corner groceries, the tiendas, the party stores, wherever you live in the country and whatever you call that mom and pop shop that's downstairs or at the corner by your house that's working hard as an independent owner to try to provide for the neighborhood. And I recognized that they were lacking the technology that was needed in order to not just succeed, but to level the playing field. Um, They did not have a point of sale register. I know it sounds crazy to hear that today. Even now, there's still many of these stores that are operating with the old, like, um, you know, cash register that has no real information or data, or some of them are still operating with a shoebox and putting the money in there. They didn't know what they were selling, how much they were selling of, who were they selling it to. And we came in and uh, National Retail Solutions which is a subsidiary of IDT, a publicly traded company. Um, We came in and we built this very easy to use, but very robust point of sale register. And today we have over 20,000 stores coast to coast. We have the same mission and goal, which is now what else could we do now that uh, we have the technology portion of your business covered? What else could we do to help you be more competitive and so that you could stay in business. Seven years ago, the threat was the brick and mortars and the, you know, the giant stores that were opening up all over the place. I live in a small town of six square miles. My town has 
three CVSs, two Walgreens, a stop and shop, three 7-Elevens, um, and I'm sure there's a few other chains that I'm forgetting. How is a corner grocery expected to be competitive in that environment? Right. And when you look also, of course, you live in the New York City area where bodegas are on many street corners there, small convenience stores where a lot of people, because they don't have a large grocery store maybe near them, rely on those bodegas for their everyday supplies. You're, you're talking about competing with the, the big stores, the, the Walmarts, if you're in, a, in, in an area where there's a room for a larger store like that, the, the Kroger's and Acme's and other grocery chains that might be in your area. How do they manage to be able to compete and survive in that kind of environment? It's, it's very challenging, but it all starts with education and technology. And the technology gives the education. I'm going to give you a great example. I went, with, I went to a few stores and I saw that the same size of Tide in one store was being sold for $3.99 and in another store, $6.99 and another store, $4.99. And this was within like three, four, five blocks of each other, right? Because you have to remember, they don't have planograms, right? The people that are operating these corner groceries, the person behind the counter, most of the time, they're the CEO, employee of the month, the marketing director, the head custodian, the HR director, and everything in between. They don't have the resources to figure out pricing and figure out what items are the best as far as products. Now that we have this consortium of 20,000 stores coast to coast, every few months, we actually come up with a list that we, and it's done by state, but let's say, let's say New Jersey. We say, hey, New Jersey, these are the top 300 items that are selling in your area. So like if you're not carrying, let's say, Kit Kat, right? So, you know, it's number 63 or number 24. And the average price is Y. You know, and that's what we do. Let's talk a moment about the pandemic, because it was extremely hard on a lot of these small mom and pop grocery stores that are on street corners when cities began to close down. And not only couldn't customers come in their doors, but customers couldn't even reach them in some ways to take care of the needs that the customers had. To, to find groceries and, and supplies and other kinds of, of the kinds of products that they would buy from them. So how were they able to use your technology to, to reach their customer base during this time of shutdowns? So I want to tell you that I was really scared for these merchants. The first week of the pandemic, 20 something percent of our units stopped, turned off, stores closed. 20 something percent but then little by little within a few weeks you saw the units coming back online right and they not only did they become essential stores sales actually increased because when you talk about where you want to shop during a pandemic you want to shop in a place that you could run in run out you know not a lot of people right it's the pandemic and i want a lot of people so that's why these stores actually a lot of them did better and then also these stores became like custom stores like what does that mean i wasn't going to my regular liquor store um so i went to my corner grocery and i said to them hey you know would you mind carrying this type of bottle of wine because i always look for and then they would be able to deliver that right when you go into one of these brick and mortar national chains 
you can't ask the woman or the man behind the counter, hey, would you mind carrying this? So they became like very custom stores for a lot of the community that they served. Um, and then, you know, we do have an online product. And when we talk about what's what we're doing for the future, um, our online product certainly uh, came into play. And people, you know, were able to look up these stores on, you know, their websites because we create websites for these merchants or an app where you can see the products that they're selling. Did many of these stores get into doing home delivery during the last couple of years as, as many other grocery yeah. stores have started to do? The answer is yes, but not efficiently. Meaning I, I don't think a lot of them were equipped um, uh, to, to do that. Um, you know, they, but that's, that is, not to give away the punchline, David, but that is now what we're beating uh, the drum here at NRS about, that we are focusing on, you know, talk about logistics, on the last mile, getting into home delivery, getting these merchants um, to be able to deliver, because not just, you know, not just for their sake, as far as, you know, becoming current with the times, but you know, there are these very well-financed ASAP delivery services that are opening up dark stores or warehouses all over the country with the intention of, you know, basically pulling people out of these corner stores and just, you know, you could stay at home and just get product delivered. So what is the future for these small mom-pa grocers, the bodegas, to be able to compete with those kinds of stores? The first step is to get the technology in the store. And then once they get the technology in the store, they're gonna be able to be part of our uh, e-commerce platform where they'll have a website. We've created partnerships with some very big, well-known delivery services. We created a platform that they could join, you know, essentially as, as a subscription, but then they don't have to pay for every single delivery. We've been talking to Ellie Katz. He's the president and CEO of National Retail Solutions. Thank you, Ellie, for being with us today. David, thank you so much for having me. Now let's take a look at some of the other supply chain news from the week. Victoria, you were reporting on the possibility of a crippling rail strike that, thanks to congressional action, looks to be averted. It is rare that Congress takes such action in labor disputes. So what's the latest? Yeah, Dave, that's right. It is rare. I think the last time it happened in the rail industry was uh, the 1990s. Uh, but so essentially, the Senate took action to avert the rail strike this uh, yesterday, actually, approving a bill that will impose a tentative labor agreement between railroads and labor unions. The bill was passed by a vote of 80 to 15, following a favorable vote, uh, vote in the House of 290 to 137 on Wednesday. So now President Biden is expected to sign it into law should also note the Senate rejected a separate House measure that would require rail companies to provide workers seven days of paid sick leave per year. Um, the issue of paid sick time had been a major sticking point in the negotiations, which had been going on for more than a year, I should say. Um, and it was a key reason that this has been uh, so dragged out. So what does this mean now for the industry and the economy? Well, about 30% of the nation's freight moves by rail. So this um, you know, has been a, a very big deal. Um, in a nutshell, uh, the vote will keep freight rail lines running, avoiding a December 8th contract negotiation deadline that would have triggered a worker strike as early as next Friday. The Biden administration had stepped in a couple of months ago, helping to broker the tentative agreement 
which was reached in September. Um, President Biden asked Congress to intervene last week after a handful of labor unions had rejected the September deal, um, leaving the door open to the strike. Um, Congress has the power to step in because of something called the National Railway Act, which allows it to intervene in uh, disputes, uh, labor disputes related to national railroads because of their potential effects on the economy. And that's really, um, really what we're talking about here. Um, the bill approved this week makes it illegal for the workers to strike, but it also imposes the terms of the September deal, which includes pay raises, more flexibility for scheduling time off and one paid personal day per year. It does not include the paid sick time I mentioned earlier that uh, the workers had been asking for um, during the negotiations. But again, the vote um, imposes a contract meeting the deadline and preventing a strike. It is controversial and political, of course, because Congress is essentially forcing a contract on workers, many of whom did not want it. But the uh, bottom line and general consensus is that there will be no disruption to rail freights, uh, freight rail service stemming from this issue anyway. Yeah, well, that last part is a good thing. And it's also good in some ways that there was some bipartisan agreement for a change in Washington. Absolutely. Yes, that's true. Thanks, Victoria. You're welcome. And Ben, you reported this week about companies and their changing motivations to make more sustainable supply chains. Can you share more? Sure thing. Uh, sustainability is, of course, one of the biggest buzzwords uh, in, in the whole economy right now. Uh, but making supply chains more sustainable is a difficult job. And we all know that companies don't like to spend money unless they can get a return on that investment. So that leaves the question of why exactly companies are trying to get more sustainable. And we've covered different responses to that question. There's you know, pressure from consumers, um, a company doing the morally right thing for the planet and for future generations, uh, regulations from industry groups, incentives from governments. There, there are a lot of different facets to the issue. Uh, but this week I saw a logistics industry survey that showed a simpler reason uh, that companies are doing this, um, that they hope to save money. Uh, so the survey came from the last mile delivery solution provider, a company called Dispatch Track. And so, of course, it was focused on trucking. There are lots of ways of being sustainable, but uh, this one's about tr trucking transportation. And it found that eight in 10 companies have sustainability efforts underway in their supply chain, even though just under 40% say that they're able to actually measure the results of those efforts. So why would they be doing this? And the reason seems to be that it's actually because of other challenges that are putting economic pressure on them, uh, specifically things that we've been writing about, like growing inflation and driver shortages, uh, other worker shortages. So here's the logic. The survey showed weak support right now for electric vehicles. Uh, only 14% said that they're using them or have plans to use battery powered trucks. Despite that really low adoption rate, the report found 85% of companies would consider adding EVs in order to save on fuel costs. Well, that makes sense, Ben. And everyone likes, of course, to save money. But it sounds like electric trucks still play a very small role in most fleets. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so as we saw with that tiny 14% number, uh, the market for battery-powered trucks is still a very young industry. Um, it has found some stronger use cases. Uh, I recently wrote about the rising use of electric yard trucks or moving containers around ports and warehouse yards. Um, in, in that kind of application, of course, they stay quite near to the charging stations. Uh, but otherwise, we're seeing really just a handful of vehicles uh, roll out onto the highways. Uh, one example, just this week, we saw Tesla 
finally deliver its first ever Tesla Semi uh, tractor trailer. Uh, they delivered that to a Pepsi plant in California that makes Frito-Lay snacks, in case you're having one of those. Uh, but that Tesla Semi was three years late, by the way, and it was funded in part by incentives from the state that we mentioned above. But as the EV industry continues to grow to where using electric trucks saves money on its own legs, that will seem to be the tipping point, of course, where a whole lot of businesses will start lining up to use them. And that was a point that was made by Satish Natarajan, who's the CEO of Dispatch Track, the company that conducted the survey. And Natarajan said that there's no question the economy is having a major impact on all aspects of business, and the supply chain certainly is no exception, that everyone is facing pressure to do more with less. But he pointed out that, uh, at least in the trucking and delivery experience that we're talking about here, a superior delivery experience and cost efficiency aren't an either or. So more sustainable business can get the job done and also run more efficiently. So it seems to be in the long run, uh, that's what companies are keeping their eye on. Yeah. It's a good move in the future if we can get the technology behind it to, to back up the electric vehicles. Let's hope that continues to accelerate as we move forward. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on it. Thanks, Ben. We encourage listeners to go to dcvelocity.com for more on these and other supply chain stories and check out the podcast notes section for some direct links on the topics that we discussed today. And again, our thanks to Ellie Katz of National Retail Solutions for being our guest. We welcome your comments on this topic and our other stories. You can email us at podcast at dcvelocity.com. We also encourage you to subscribe to Logistics Matters at your favorite podcast platform. Our new episodes are uploaded each Friday. Speaking of subscribing, check out our sister podcast series, Supply Chain in the Fast Lane, co-produced by the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals and Supply Chain Quarterly. Our current series deals with attracting and retaining labor. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And a reminder that Logistics Matters is sponsored by Aptian. Aptian Routing and Scheduling supports logistics and delivery fulfillment operations with the tools needed to optimize resources, automate route planning and proof of delivery processes, and drive savings of up to 30%. Your delivery operation can be a powerful vehicle to deliver game-changing customer service. Aptian routing and scheduling can help. Visit aptian.com and discover how now. We'll be back again next week with another edition of Logistics Matters, so be sure to join us. Until then, have a great week.